You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, Dan. Hey, Bob. How are you? I can't complain. Uh, I'm I'm happy to uh, to be here with you. We're gonna talk about arcane stuff. I'm, I should say I'm Robert Wright. Uh, you know, and and you're Dan. I'm I'm, I'm not. And you're no. not. Are you old enough to remember that? <laughs> I'm Dan Kaufman. Uh, but are you old enough to remember that that Saturday Night Live thing? Yeah, of course. I'm Chevy Chase, and you're not. <laughs> yes, of course. Yeah, okay. I, I I watched it. I mean, uh, it, it was a bit of a struggle to get my parents to let me stay up because you know then I was about nine years old. But um, yeah, I was in high school. I remember it. Um, but um, so yeah, so I'm Dan Kaufman. Uh, for people who don't know, if there are any. Um, I'm a professor of philosophy at Missouri State, and I host the Sophia program here, which I usually do with Massimo Piliucci, but lately have been bringing some new people in, including Crispin Sartwell, who I'm kind of excited about, and I hope will do more with me in the future. Uh, I'm going to work on him. So, And uh, that's about it. Uh, I guess we're talking about the no-self today, Bob? Apparently. So this is how this happened. You... Uh... As you are, as you do from time to time, you wrote about something dismissively in the comments section of Meaning of Life TV, and and the uh, the the thing you wrote about dismissively was this Buddhist idea of not self. Now, of course, it's not in the spirit of the idea of not self to take anything personally, especially if you take the idea of not self seriously. And I take it kind of seriously, but and you but, never take anything personally. I never about. take anything. I'm above all that. <laughs> I have attained enlightenment, but I do have a book coming out called Why Buddhism is True, comes out in a few weeks, and I'm going to, during during the next couple months, I'll be departing from my uh, general aversion to self-promotion to repeatedly mention that I have this book coming out called Why Buddhism is True, and that people can, can pre-order from Amazon. Well, I do have the galleys. If you insist, Dan, it's your show. This is your show. We're on Sophia, not my show. If it were my show, this might be bad form, but it's not, so I'll show you oh, what, that's, that's roughly really what nice, the hardcover man. looks like. It's, it's very nice. uh, pretty. The hardcover is very pretty in person, especially. Uh, so I encourage everyone to encounter it in person. So anyway, uh, so I, I emailed you and said, um, you know, I notice you're deeply skeptical of this Buddhist idea of not-self. And so maybe we should uh, talk about it and, and what it means and what I think it means, which is not easy in itself. It's a very elusive thing, even at a conceptual level. Well, I was going to say that, you know, I don't know that I was dismissive of the idea. I was dismissive of the versions of it that I was hearing or that were being told to me. And it may be the case that I hear something that change, you know, that, to which I change my mind and say, no, well, that, that makes perfect sense. Um, um, so, uh, you know, I really wasn't trying, I wasn't trying to be mean, that's certainly... Um, but there's a certain kind you of... Weren't, you weren't trying to be mean to the not-selves out there. No, of course not. I don't care if people are Buddhists. I mean, that's their... You know, it's just... There's a certain kind of thing where people... I don't know. It seems to me like... They're either saying something that's obviously untrue or is true and uninteresting. Mm-hmm. Right? And it, it this sounded a little bit to me like that. But that may just be because it wasn't explained very well. Yeah. Um, um, and so I'm happy to have you, you know, give me another version of it. Um, okay, well, let me try. I mean, I think I've, I, 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 I'm not sure I'll improve on what you've already seen, since some of what you've seen were conversations involving me, usually me interrogating uh, someone who either was 
an expert on Buddhism or, or somebody whose uh, level of meditative attainment was much greater than mine and who had actually, uh, in some sense, experienced not-self. Uh, and, and, and this is, I should say, there's a couple of interesting things about Buddhism that pertain to not-self. One is this, the, the idea that there's kind of two ways to apprehend the truths of B Buddhist philosophy, or at least uh, the, the most important ones, you might say. Uh, I should also say, by the way, that the word truth in some Buddhist circles is, is viewed suspiciously, and among the kinds of blowback I will get for this title, <laughs> Why Buddhism is True, uh, is, is the kind that says, wait a second, there are Buddhist philosophers themselves who said there's no ultimate truth, all of which is true, as we say in the... <laughs> as, we, as we who are simple-minded say, all of which is true. Um, but uh, but the, these, these kind of key Buddhist doctrines, like not-self-emptiness, the interesting thing about them is there are two ways to apprehend them. One is experientially. In other words, both both not self and so-called emptiness, which maybe we, if we have time we can get into a little, but, but uh, are ideas that someone of great meditative attainment would apprehend intuitively. They would experience the dot. They, they would experience not self. Okay, so it's it's a it's a direct intuitive apprehension of the truth of it. You're like living it, and 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 I can talk about, you know, times when I've moved a little bit down that path myself in my meditation, maybe in my daily meditation, maybe at a meditation retreat. But anyway, separate from that, there is then the philosophical articulation of the doctrine, and my sense is that in general they came in that order. In other words, uh long ago people meditated and reached conclusions not self-emptiness and then as the years went by Buddhist philosophers you know put more and more formal argumentation behind them okay and uh, the truth is it's unclear uh, where the Buddha himself comes in here I mean it, it, it's not it's always difficult with these founders of whole schools of, of religion or ancient philosophy uh, or it's often difficult to say what the actual historical person was, what they actually said. Jesus, Muhammad. It's harder, I think, with the Buddha even than with Jesus and Muhammad. So, so I, 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 and in fact, there are arguments over whether the Buddha himself believed that there was no self, or was actually in his famous discourse on the not self was actually just giving a kind of a a meditative guidance that was supposed to be a therapeutic benefit. It's kind of like think, think. Think of all these things that are giving you trouble as not self, right? And, and and maybe you know maybe that'll help. That that's a minority view, but it, you cannot dismiss it entirely because the record is just not that clear. The the written record coalesced centuries after the Buddha. Right. So so I guess the one thing I would ask you is you know on the the first part the experiential. Um, I guess I right away. Do you not see anything paradoxical in saying that that someone experiences that they're not someone? Um, it is it's ironic. Just, it's just that someone experiences non-self, and that already to me, I already have a problem with that. I have no idea what that yeah. means. Well, first of all, there's a reply that I don't think will help, but that is standard, which is to say that uh, to distinguish between conventional reality or truth and ultimate reality or truth, and say that a self. Uh, the self exists in a conventional sense. In other words, they don't ha they see the utility of talking about me and you. They're not against that. So in a conventional sense, the self exists, but they would say in an ultimate sense, the self doesn't exist. Now that reply, I don't think helps a lot. But, 
but yes, I, I see the the irony and um, I, I again I, I, I have not I've talked to people who including on, on this website who, who say they've experienced and even experienced in an ongoing way not self. I haven't felt it myself. I have uh, have you felt it in part? I mean, what, can you? Can yeah, you yeah, yeah. I can qualitatively. Yeah, and, yeah, and I think this is important. There's, I would say, I've had two kinds of experience that point to it, and um, the first kind is interesting because it meshes very nicely with the so-called first discourse on the not self, the the seminal document, the Buddha's. Uh, what is said to be his first, in fact, it's said to be his second post-enlightenment sermon delivered ever. The first one was the sermon at Deer Park where he lays out the basic problem. There is suffering. Here is the path to suffering and so on. That's the first sermon. Second sermon is said to be on not-self, at least certainly in the Theravada tradition. And I, I think maybe this is, uh, you wouldn't get trouble for saying that in the, in the Mahayana tradition. Either. Those are two basic Buddhist traditions. Um, so, and, and what the Buddha does, and this is the part that kind of meshes with, with my experience, is he goes through all of the categories of human experience according to Buddhist psychology and philosophy. These are the so-called five aggregates. So there's like feeling, you know, just positive or negative feeling. There's perceptions. There's the physical self, and for that matter, the physical world that's apprehended. Uh, and and so on. There's a category called mental formations, which includes thoughts and complex emotions and, and so on. Um, so anyway, the, the five categories are, are said to be together exhaustive, according to Buddhist philosophy. And he, and he kind of goes through them and says, it, and, and questions whether they deserve to be part of the self. Okay, so and now let me switch to an, a meditative experience which uh, I encourage uh, people who are suffering from anxiety to try to have, which is that you would do mindfulness meditation and reflect on a particular feeling, could be one that's giving you trouble, like anxiety, and you get to a point where uh, your relation to it fundamentally changes, okay? I want to say, and in a certain sense, it is no longer part of you. It is no longer causing you any suffering whatsoever, which doesn't mean it goes away. It just ceases to, to uh, have any kind of negative valence that impacts you, okay? And, and I've had that experience where I observed, it's, it's, I, don't, I, I can't just snap my fingers and have it. I mean, it's the kind of thing that's much easier to retreat, or if you've just been at a retreat, uh, than it is, and it's easier if you're practicing every day uh, than if you're not, but, um, but I've had the experience where you meditate a few minutes. You know, you're deeply anxious over something. You you know, the, the anxiety is, in a, in a sense, in you in, in a kind of like a kind of a knotted rope. And then you get to a point where you're kind of looking at it with the detachment with which you might view a piece of abstract art in a museum. It is not a problem. Now, I, I want to be careful with the word detachment because there's an irony here, which is that, in a way, the way you get here is to get closer to the feeling. In the, what I mean is, you don't run from the feet. We tend to run from negative feelings, and that's a natural reaction. Like, Ugh, can I think of something that will make the anxiety away? Can I eat something that will make the anxiety go away? Can I, you know, whatever? That's the natural reaction. And mindfulness meditation aims to put you in a sufficiently uh, kind of calm state that you can actually view even negative things with equilibrium. And so you, in that sense, get closer to them rather than run away from them. But the effect of that 
is for them to seem can be for them to seem like less a part of you. I think I think most Buddhists would prefer the term non-attachment to detachment. But but let me just stop here and say so this is a case where something that had felt like a part of you, right, suddenly doesn't seem like part of you. Now that that doesn't get you all the way to not self, but uh, a premise of of my uh, I mean the thing I emphasize in the book is is that you can view not self as, as, as something uh, that you approach incrementally, maybe asymptotically, you may never get there, but it, it could be a good idea to move in that direction. So that's one category of meditative experience. Now, what, uh, so what's your reaction to that? Um, well, I mean, I guess what I would want to ask is, I mean, so if, if all that you're, if what, if what you're suggesting is that, listen, you know, we can have various kinds of experiences and feelings, and if we, if we get ourselves into sort of a proper position, we can kind of externalize them or at least uh, look at them more from sort of a third-person perspective, and then they don't affect us so much. I mean, I guess that's sort of, you know, unobjectionable, and I mean, I don't know that that's even something that's particularly specific to any particular philosophical or religious movement. I mean, that's just something that seems to be part of one's ordinary toolkit on how to cope with various things. Um, but I don't understand, I guess I don't understand how that is moving in the direction of there not being a self. Okay, that leads to my second experience. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, in my book, I make a distinction. I don't know if anyone's done this before. In my book, I make a distinction between the kind of interior part of the not-self experience and what I call the exterior part. The exterior part is more like a dissolution of the bounds of the self. It feels like that, okay? And the so an experience I've had like on a meditation retreat is like I, I, I feel a tingling in my foot and I hear a bird singing and, and it really feels like the tingling in my foot is no more a part of me than the bird singing. The bird singing is no less a part of me than the tingling in the foot. Okay, the extent to which I identify with them is not different. It, it's it's very hard to describe this. It's even very hard for me to remember what it feels like. But I, 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 it was worth writing down afterwards. I remember. And and, and when I've reported this to really, uh, you know, adept meditators who have gone way down the path, they always say, "Yeah, yeah, that's exactly that." That for some of them, it's like it's like that all the time. And, and, and I want to, the connection between the two experiences is the following, okay? <clears throat> One reason, the way I moved toward the point where suddenly it seemed like things beyond me could be part of me, was that the things within me seemed like less a part of me. Okay, so, so the various feelings, I was, they felt a little less, you know, directly tied into me. Uh, the, 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 my, myself as conventionally defined, in other words, seemed uh, more diffuse, less consolidated. And, and that, I think, I think that helped pave the way to uh, there just not being a big difference between what was inside me and what was outside me. Okay? And the other thing I want to say is I, 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 I said that one interesting thing about Buddhism is that there's the experiential apprehension of these things, and then there's the philosophical argumentation for them, which we can get to, and for that matter, the scientific uh, argument to some extent on their behalf. We can get to all that. Another interesting thing about Buddhism is uh, 
and I, I don't think it's unique to Buddhism, but you might know more about it than me, is the connection between metaphysical truth and moral truth. So, <clears throat> apprehending that the self is really not a real and meaningful entity is supposed to make you selfless in the, in the moral sense of the term, right? So, like, I should care as much about that bird I heard singing as I should about the things inside my skin. And, and, and that's another thing people report, that, that uh, yes, the experience of the way you get to not-self is, is letting go of all the, the selfish clinging to, you know, I want to I wanna eat this, I want to eat, you know, I want to have sex with her or him, I want to do, not, not that you don't keep eating or even that you don't keep having sex, but the, the kind of urgent uh, drive for self-related attainments is, is really greatly relaxed as, as part of as part of uh, viewing the interior of the so-called self with non-attachment. Those two are kind of one and the same. It's a, uh, and, and in any event, that is said to pave the way for being more naturally selfless in the moral sense. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, there's a lot of uh, a lot of parts here. I mean, I guess one of the things I would say is that what it would push on is that you know if you really mean something like the not self, then I don't even see how there can be any moral ascriptions. And so, and so, I mean, because moral obligation attaches to selves, mm -hmm. and so there's something really weird, borderline, un almost ungrammatical about saying I don't exist and I have responsibilities. Um, um, and so, so I would I would say you know you, you can't really mean I don't exist. That that was what I was saying at the beginning about. I wonder whether what they're saying is this obviously false or, on the other hand, obviously true and uninteresting, right? I mean, you can't have moral obligations if you don't exist, and you can't be responsible for things if you don't exist. So that's, I mean, one thing I would say. And, and, and the other thing is, you know, but this is a separate issue, and I don't know that we want to go down this road. I more and more think I am understanding this, and I guess I more and more I'm thinking that it's a view of moral virtue that I find very odd um, and that I don't find particularly admirable. I mean, maybe that's why it doesn't really appeal to me very much. But to my mind, I am my most moral when I'm the most invested in the people with whom I'm connected, not when I'm the least. And I don't see how I can be invested if I erase myself or if I erase the distinctions between me and the other person so that we all just become one sort of one entity. Um, um, now, now we say that again, the first part, you're most invested in who? In other people. Um, uh, I, I, I think that I'm, I'm, you know, that, that I'm most morally engaged when I'm most invested in other people. Right. And that that is predicated on there being quite substantial yeah. distinctions between me and the other person. If, 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 if there's no boundary between me and my daughter and my wife and all of that, then that, that very distinctive sense of investment in the other and, and obligation, the obligations that come from that investment um, strike me as being uh, diminished. Now, but, but this is a separate issue. This is more about a question of whether I, I find this sort of an admirable picture of, of, of virtue. Um, um, it's that sort of somewhat separate from the issue of whether I think you actually can have any moral obligations if you're not a, if you don't exist, right? Yeah, I mean, well, here's the funny thing: uh, is that um, the, the the idea here, as I and again, well, I haven't said this yet, but Buddhism is a very diverse, you know, like all schools of religion and philosophy. And here we're talking about really the philosophy part. 
it has branches, and you know this, this has evolved over millennia, heading spreading into different lands. There's very few things that are that are that are true of Buddhism, um, generally. But I would say that an interesting thing about the idea here, it gets back to the metaphysical and the moral, is that <clears throat> it's like if everyone were enlightened, you wouldn't need to worry about moral obligation because no one would be behaving selfishly. Okay, <laughs> in other words, it's and you know, it's interesting, um, I, I've, one person I, I, I spent a certain amount of time with who, you know, of the several people I've talked to who maybe have a legitimate claim to, well, being close to enlightenment, whether or not they would use that term themselves, uh, he was one of the more interesting uh, ones, and I would say it's not like he was not the, the kumbaya-ish stereotype of a Buddhist, running around, oh, can I help you, oh, can I help you, oh, can I help you, but uh, on the other hand, he wasn't the problem, right, because he didn't, he, he didn't have the kind of, uh, I guess, appetites or whatever that would make someone uh, a moral problem, uh, and that's, you know, so, I don't know. It, it's a. It's a. It's a. It's a. Complex- it's an interesting point, though. I had a similar argument with Massimo about the desirability of the, of being the Stoic state, being the Stoic sage, and mm-hmm. holding up the Stoic sage and ideal. And when you describe the enlightened per- person and hold it up as ideal, I think to myself, "Gosh, I don't really think that's an ideal at all." Um, um, and partly it's because what you're describing is something that's no longer human, um, and. Um, I don't think that it's. I don't think that it's a reasonable ideal for a human to have a non-human as an ideal. I mean, this is part of the reason why I don't. It's real. One of the reasons I really don't like Christianity, um, um, because I think it creates unattainable ideals that then just produce nothing but you know all sorts of, in my view, distorted attitudes. As so, what you mean, like brotherly love, or well, the idea of sort of you know aspiring to be like the allegedly perfect man, um, um, uh, uh, you know. Um, to be Christ-like, um, um, I, to me is just I find a, a, a quixotic sort of quest that more often produces makes you worse, trying to be like rather than makes you better. Um, but but I just you know I don't you know when you say you know it would you know if there, everybody was enlightened there wouldn't be any need for moral obligation because everybody would behave well. Sounds like a terrible place, right? <laughs> um, Compared um, to know, the current world. I mean, I really tell, tell, tell that to the tell that to the you know but hundreds that's, of you know, thousands of dead people in Syria or whatever. I mean, look, that's an easy answer. It's the one that B.F. Skinner gives in in Beyond Freedom and Dignity when he argues for why we should have a technocratic totalitarian system. Well, that's a very different ideal, but but okay, of course. But it's the same rationale, and that as well. You know, how can you be so cavalier about all the suffering in the world? You know, isn't that more important than your boring little your concerns about uh, freedom and dignity and all these other abstractions? But I, I do think that there's actually a serious sort of point. I mean, there's there's a very good essay by Susan Wolf that's called Moral Saints. And she uh, argues not only that she wouldn't want to be a moral saint, but that no one really, if they really thought about it, would want to hang out very much with moral saints. And, and, and the problem is that when all you do is focus on moral obligation, of you don't cultivate any other virtues. And a lot of times, the cultivation of the other virtues re- requires precisely the kind of non-moral or negative characteristics. In other words, I don't know if you have if you get great art 
without people being obsessive in a lot of the ways that you claim Buddhism seeks to eviscerate or eliminate. I don't know if you get great sort of drama um, um, without those qualities. In other words, I guess I think our negative uh, qualities are important, and I'm not so and I'm not so keen on sort of uh, erasing all of them to turn us all into non-human, essentially non-human enlightened uh, actors. Um, uh, yeah, well, so, yeah, I mean, I guess well, I mean, that couple, sounds very appealing. A couple of things. First of all, uh, Buddhism as practiced in Asia isn't trying to get everyone to this place. by You know, most Buddhists in Asia don't meditate. Now, awakening is the ideal, but there's no realistic expectation that they'll get it in this lifetime. The idea, rather, for religious Asian Buddhists, broadly speaking, again, I'm sure you can find exceptions, but is to live a virtuous life and therefore increase the chances of a favorable rebirth. Right. Somewhere down the line, it would be great to be unlike. But, but so, so the Buddhist program, in fact, I'd say is a comparable thing about Christianity. I was a Christian as a kid. I don't recall seriously thinking I could be like Christ. It was more like do the best you can, believe in Jesus, and you go to heaven. But in any event, um, the uh, uh, the as for the the are you turning yourself into something other than a human? Um, and, and this actually gets to a, a, a dimension of my book that is very prominent, which is like evolutionary psychology and a Darwinian perspective. It seems to me the premise that it's just inherently bad to depart from being a human in, in any significant degree, is that humans were, like, designed to be good. But they weren't. Humans were designed <clears throat> by natural selection. It, goodness, in your sense of the t word or my sense of the word, manifestly was not high on natural selection's priorities. That's why there are so many animals that spend so much time killing other animals, including human beings. And so the idea that, you know, to hear a human being say, but I'm a human, I shouldn't become anything that's not like a human, uh, I, I'm not convinced that that's solid logic, A. And then B, I would just quickly say, there are not many people who have gone so far down the path that you would accuse them of, of, of not being recognizably human. I mean, in a way, I've never really met it. I've never met anybody. I, I mean, I don't know. And I, and I also don't know if true enlightenment is possible. The jury's, you know, that that's a whole uh, discussion. My, the main point of my book is it's, it's, it, it's something worth moving toward, however modestly most of us uh, might hope to succeed in moving toward it. But so anyway, I've said, I've said kind of two things. I mean, first of all, these, the people I've met are not automatons, even the people have, who have uh, uh, gone a long way down the path. They, they laugh and they uh, take pleasure in things. Uh, and, uh, but they, well, I, I can get into what they are like later. But then anyway, the second thing I said is I'm, I'm not sure it makes sense to say just because you define some ideal as not being human in your sense of the term. That that in itself uh, is a basis for rejecting it. Yeah. So so there's two things. So first of all, I I certainly, you know, gosh, I don't know all the Buddhists. I mean, I'm certainly I'm not talking about people. I'm talking about what seems to me is being characterized as an ideal. And what I'm saying is, this doesn't strike me as an ideal for people. 
Um, um, and, and I do think it matters to some extent what we take to be our ideals because that then de determines what direction you go in and what, you, what, 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 what virtues you try to cultivate and what virtues you tend to let, let lie a bit more fallow. So, I mean, I don't want to say, I'm not talking about individual Buddhists. I'm sure most of them are very nice people just like most other people. I'm talking about the ideal that's being characterized, which just strikes me as a very strange sort of ideal. Um, if we're talking about people, um, and um, the other, th with respect to the other thing about about you know, there's something in between um, leaving human nature as it is and not thinking it requires any sort of work or improvement, and on the other hand, saying that what well, what would be ideal would be to uh, strip all of all of it away. I mean, it, it seems to me that what's ideal is that you know people be good enough that life is is generally good and but but have enough quirks and foibles and faults etc that life remains interesting right i mean um well, um, well if you talk to these people that are cl a lot closer than you or i to enlightenment <clears throat> i'm actually going to tape a, di a dialogue with one uh, later today uh and um but but the um they don't say life isn't interesting and in fact, they 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 find I would say if anything uh, they tend to see uh, find more to be fascinated by in more things than than you or I. And you know, by the end of a retreat, sometimes you're in this kind of zone where you have a little bit of a sense of what it's like to be them all the time. And I, I have a much deeper sense of the beauty of things. I'm much more likely to stop and appreciate like the texture of the bark uh, of a tree. Much more likely to savor food. I mean, at these retreats, when I first went to a retreat, I noticed like people, a lot of people were eating with their eyes closed. I'm like, what's up with this? Of course, nobody's talking. You know, there's no, there's no, they're silent. And I noticed people have their eyes closed, but now I totally get it. They are immersing themselves in the flavor of the food. And, and there actually is a connection between letting go of a lot of your day-to-day -day kind of self-interested concerns and appreciating the world, right? You walk down the street, you're thinking, oh, man, I got to do this today. Oh, uh, you know, I, th that asshole did this to me. He'll get his whatever. There's a lot of things going through your head. Some are, some are not that selfish. Some are, some are selfish in a loose sense of the term. Some are not selfish at all. Some are selfish. But in any event, um, a, a lot of our day-to-day -day thinking is like about about ourselves. Not always in a not always in a, in a highly lamentable sense. But anyway, it's it's letting go of a lot of that that lets you immerse yourself in the world and appreciate other people more. But that seems. But then, I mean, now now I'm starting to whether whether we're move whether we're getting towards the pole of obvious and uninteresting, right? I mean, I mean, that just sounds like good advice. Um, it doesn't sound to me like yeah, something it that requires work. some Eastern philosophy or religion to figure out that if, you, if you're obsessing about a bunch of stuff, you're not going to be paying attention to the thing you're doing now. I mean, my parents told me things like that when I was six years old. But I they mean, don't help. It doesn't help to tell people that. Of course it does. No good whatsoever. <laughs> I'm exaggerating, but my point is this. There, there's a lot. Works. <laughs> no, let, me, let me, you know, it's like when I wrote uh, my book on evolutionary psychology, The Moral Animal, I pretty much had the diagnosis, and in fact, that's a lot of what I'm arguing in this book, is that 
Buddhism nailed the diagnosis, this, it's the same picture of, of the human predicament that kind of emerges from evolutionary psychology. That's a lot of the point of my book. And, uh, um, but, but knowing that, seeing the, the part of human nature in me that I wasn't wild about did not help. Meditation is, is a practice that's designed to do something about it. And I find it to be much more helpful than just thinking, you know, I really should, I really should spend uh, less time having revenge fantasies and more time uh, savoring the taste of food or savoring the, the beauty in animals or human beings. Um, this actually helps you do it. And, and the way I think of the not-self thing is as, uh, as a kind of ideal that I'm never going to realize... On the other hand, the people who are as close to it as anybody I've seen uh, seem to be in a very good place. So it's not like I, I, I feel a need to put on the brakes anywhere between me and them. And meanwhile, that's just the direction I'd like to head in, you know. And and again, the, the key thing, well, a key thing is uh, there's a practice associated with it that, in my experience, works. I just don't see what I, I don't see I don't see how you get from hey you shouldn't you know if you're trying to savor or enjoy a, a, a present day experience you should you, you shouldn't you know be, be be sort of stuck in your head obsessing over an argument you had this morning or whatever I don't see how that what that has to do with you not existing I mean well again though it is incremental progress toward the ideal. Of that existing. has allowed you to do that. I see. I just don't see and, how that. I don't and, see how that's the. And the further the you go, the better it gets. That's all I'm saying. Now, separate from all of this, are, uh, well, what? I, there are other things that we could talk about that, that go under the label of not self. I mean, we, we, you know, we, we you've talked. We've been talking about the desirability of taking the idea seriously. Yeah. And you don't have to take it seriously to get some of these benefits out of meditation. You absolutely don't. Uh, at the same time, it's uh, it's a very I find it a very coherent philosophy, and I personally uh, think that not self can be defended as kind of moral ideal. Um, um, that, that's fine. We don't have to spend. Uh, I mean, I think we've, we've aired pretty good about the question of whether it's ideal or not. I want to just say quickly. Um, uh, uh, I do have experience with meditation, um, but partly because, um, not partly, entirely because I suffered from pretty crippling panic attacks in my 20s, and meditation was part of the regimen that was involved in the cognitive behavioral therapy that I underwent. Mm -hmm. And so I did do some. Um, um, I don't do it now. I mean, once I ceased sort of having panic attacks, the obvious reason for doing it sort of melted away, and it's not something I find does much for me at this point. But so I just don't want to say it's not that I'm completely unfamiliar. It's not something I'm completely unfamiliar with, although I understand that there are very different kinds, and probably the sort I was doing was very targeted towards one specific end. Um, but I mean, I think we should talk a little bit about, you know, if you're going to be talking about the question of whether the self, whether there's a self or not, or whether there's a not not a self, um, it might help to talk about what the thing is. Yeah. And you know, part of my part of my problem with all of this is I think that the self is essentially a social entity, and so I don't think it's possible for there to be a not self uh, in the sense that is meant. Um, and uh, this is this is sort of an argument that I've had with people in a lot of different areas. 
um, I've had this argument actually with people who try to claim too much, too much ownership of their self-identity. And I, you know, I, there's a, a great Louis C.K. line which goes, um, someone says, A says to B, you're an asshole. And B says to A, no, I'm not. And A says, well, that's not for you to decide. That's for everyone else to decide, right? Um, and, and I think that that's true actually for a lot of what makes up the actual self of a person. And so at a very basic level, I don't think the self is the kind of thing that, they're, that, that the not-self thesis is, is plausible, frankly. Well, when you say it's doesn't a matter how much you, doesn't matter how much erasing you do, the fact is that a good part of what you are as a self is determined by other people, not by you. You mean the you, fact that they refer to Bob and refer to not Dave? just that they refer to Bob, that you are caught up in a whole network of social uh, relations and institutional relations, not to mention normative valences that point all over the place. I mean, you can claim you're not a self till you're blue in the face, but all sorts of obligations and duties and responsibilities and punishments and rewards are going to accrue to you nonetheless by virtue of you being precisely the person that you're saying you aren't. And so Wait, and that's I'm not, not sure in virtue you, that's not in virtue of you being a physical organism. That's in virtue of you being a person, being a self. And so I think that the so, self is essentially socially constituted. Well, it sounds like you're almost saying socially constructed, but I don't think you want to say that because then you know, you're starting to move in my direction. I mean, it, to a certain extent, yes, but then that means that you don't have control over it in the way that it seems to me this requires you to have, right? Well, you don't have you don't have control over the way uh, people react to you. No, but but I don't think. I mean, the fact that people walk around saying, there's Bob, he's a self, and attributing certain properties to me and reacting in accordance to that attribution. I don't see that as a deeply philosophically significant. See, I think that's ninety percent of it. I think the rest is relatively esoteric and uninteresting. Well, and it may it may be, but but again, you know, uh, Buddhism acknowledges that the self exists in a conventional sense, and in a way that that may be all that's necessary for all of what you just described to happen. In other words, we do act as if selves exist, and you know. Look, obviously, that's not acting as if. That's not acting as if. That's the thing. I mean, that's like saying that I'm only acting as if there's a law that requires me to have my have tags on my car. You're not only acting as if. If you violate it, you're going to get a fine, and you're going to have to pay it. And you can't go into court and say, you know, this isn't only an as if sort of thing. You know, it doesn't really exist. I mean, of course it exists. And and I just so, I guess, so what's the comparable test of the existence of selves? In that case, well, you tested the claim that there's no law that will be enforced. What's the comparable test for the that idea? No matter of how much you say you're not a self, everyone else is going to treat you like you are, and all the same things that yeah, would. But the Buddhist you. claim is not that other people don't think I'm a self, so that that doesn't work. Well, if you say that there's that there's that the self doesn't exist, then as a matter of fact, there is no self, and I'm claiming there is. And the evidence you're of claiming it is, is that your people treat me as if life. you're claiming that people is treat me as if I'm a self, which nobody denies. No, I'm saying you are a self by virtue of the fact that you are in all of these relations to other people. Okay, but that's just a different definition of self. Not only than the than, than the one that prevails in Buddhism, but the one that prevails in a lot of other circles of discussion. Fine, if you want to define it that way, you're right. Yeah, but I don't think it's but, that loser of a thing. But, I mean, look, the, the other type has tried to... Part of the problem is that, look, I mean, the other part has been tried to be defined going back at least as far as Descartes and not further. And it's come... It's, it's, it's landed in nothing but zeros. 
Um, and so, you know, the, 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 the social version is the only one that really hasn't run either into catastrophic skepticism or into solipsism. Well, it sounds like you're conceding or, the whole point at this point. I don't see how. Well, you just said the only non-problematic conception of the self is the one that Buddhism's not talking about anyway. But your, yeah, your but social to say, conception. To say, that, to say that a conception of... To say that the self doesn't exist and then to say, oh, by the way, it's not the one that you mean. It's this other esoteric one. Well, it's one. not the one you're defining. That's just not what... And it's not what a lot of other... Look, are you familiar with David Hume's uh, argument against the self? Sure, we've talked about it. Yeah, so... so yeah, we did. So... He didn't have in mind the social conception itself. He was doing this introspective thing that was kind of Buddhist in nature, which is like, you know, I, I okay, so I've got these feelings, but is that what I mean by self? No. I, I you know, it was very much, it had a little in common with, with, and, and so anyway, that, you know, this, this major philosopher uh, was using the word self in a way that you're not. And I also think if you ask most people, what do they mean by a self? You'll get different ideas. Almost no one. We'll talk about what you're talking about. I, I think a common sense conception of the self is there's this conscious self, this conscious thing, and it is like kind of the CEO. It is the doer of my deeds. It is the thinker of my thoughts. And that and that formulation, you know, shows up in, in Buddhism uh, at some point in history as well and, uh, and, and is dismissed. And... Um, and that, by the way, is a conception of self. I think that's really common. And, and in, in, there, modern psychological science has cast serious doubt on that idea. That what I think of as my conscious self is the initiator of my thoughts, is the doer of the deeds, and, and so on. And I spend a certain amount of time on that uh, in the book. But I think that's a much more uh, intuitively common, it's closer to what people mean by myself than what you're talking about. I, look, if all that if all that you're saying is that Buddhism is anti-Cartesian, then I have no disagreement with it. I wouldn't. Um, I wouldn't put but, it quite but, that but way. But then I would say, all right. I mean, I, I don't think that gets you very very much in terms of all the other stuff you're talking about. The fact that a Cartesian self doesn't exist to me does not imply anything about all the moral sort of stuff and virtue oriented stuff that you're talking about. Well, no, no but it's, I don't uh, think it has much to do with with Descartes because it's it's. Uh, um, there are a lot of people who reject Cartesian, uh, the Cartesian distinction, who still think of themselves as being a conscious self or having a conscious self. Uh, the, I mean, what Descartes... I mean, you're right, Descartes claims that... Well, I mean, you know, we don't need to get into Descartes, but, but he, he had this immaterial stuff that's influencing the material stuff. I, 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 yeah, I, I don't mean that. I don't mean that way. I mean as a kind of, as a kind of a metaphysically enduring subject of experience... Um, um, that's what I sort of mean by Cartesianism. Well, this too is uh, a big, and I should say at this point, uh, I mean that that's a big thing. Enduring is a key word. The the if you look in the early Buddhist writings, and in, in, including uh, the the uh, that first discourse on the not self, the Buddha never defines what he means by a self. But if you look at the way he's arguing against the self, you can infer his kind of conception of what, what properties the self would have. And one of them is this thing of persistence through time. He looks at the different, you know, endurance. He, he looks at the different things, the feelings and so on. He says, are they permanent or impermanent? And the monks say impermanent. He goes, okay, I rest my case. You know, and he says, and he basically says, uh, now don't they... Uh, they are not really under your control, right? I mean, your feelings really under control? 
Is your body under your control? Doesn't it cause you affliction? Doesn't your body hurt sometimes and you can't do anything about it? And they're like, yeah. And he's like, okay, I rest my case. So another property, aside from persistence through time, that he's attributing to the conception of self, is the idea that it's like under control, okay? Under control of something, like under control of, a, you know. And so uh, as a philosophical matter, those are some of the uh, earliest strands you see in the literature, that the self is thought of as something that persists through time. It's, it, it's associated with control. And he's denying uh, the existence of that kind of self. Now, you know, again, Buddhism has gone on a long time and it's unfolded and has all these different dimensions. And so there's, on the one hand, this kind of philosophical argument, uh, you know, where we can talk about what properties the self has. And then there's the sheerly experiential part that is that is actually uh, connected connected to the metaphysical assertions, but also to moral ideals. So it's, it's a pretty complicated deal. But, 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 I, but the last part I said about, about persistence and control, to maybe uh, put it in what you might see as a, uh, a more Western frame of reference almost, in other words, this is the kind of thing philosophers argue over, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I mean, I'm partly at a disadvantage only because most of the views I hold and accept in, in philosophy are minority views. <laughs> um, um, and so, I mean, although they wouldn't have been, let's say, uh, in, in, before the 1960s, um, um, for a while they were pretty dominant. But, you know, I, in my, it's still not entirely clear to me whether what's being rejected is... I mean, what I was going to ask you while you were describing this this point about the, the enduring uh, subject of experience... Um, Besides Descartes, do you think that does the Buddhist also reject even a Lockean notion of uh, self and identity? That is, that okay, maybe there isn't an enduring underlying substrate that is the self that continues on over time, but can we at least speak of the enduring self as um, uh, all the stages of of, of 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 my life and experience that I can remember uh, that are connected that are connected through memory? Um, can that can that in a sense narrative at least be viewed as an enduring ongoing self or or is that also being rejected? In other words, is it, is it that there's an underlying substrate that's being rejected or is it a more radical rejection than that that there isn't we can't even speak of because then that would get to then that would also in, 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 imply doubts about even the social self that I'm talking about, which I happen to think probably is the only real one but mm -hmm. um, 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 well, I mean, the the second what would you could you call it the narrative self or something? I mean, the self. That, I have, I'm fine with the Lockean version. Let's call it the narrative self. That's fine. I I, I actually kind of like that. I, um, I mean, you know, the, I mean, the short answer is they would deny the existence of anything you call a self uh, in their sense of the word. They they don't deny that there's uh, a narrative uh, that encompasses more than one moment. Now, a modern psychologist might point out that you're continually reconstructing the earlier parts of that narrative. The memory is not, is, the memory is designed to be inaccurate. So every time you, you, you retell a story, you might change it a little and then the changed version becomes your memory. So even the, the narration is, does not endure through time intact, okay? I mean that's a that's what a modern psychologist yeah, might say. I don't, about I don't see that that what the that I mean I didn't say anything about accuracy it's or just, correctness. It's just like I just, I'm simply asking, you know. Okay, yeah. I mean I can give very boring examples, but you know, 
you know, uh, I can talk about how, you know, the way I am today is partly a result of things that happened to me when I was, you know, in my, in my early part of my career and that then happened to me in, in, in the early parts of my marriage that then caused me to right. work on various aspects that then changed me in certain ways that now I'm like this more than I used to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the most common way of talking in the world. It seems to me is absolutely clearly straightforward. Everybody yeah. understands what it means. Yeah, yeah. And it just sounds to me like people say, "Nope, not those things don't really exist," right? I mean, um, I, I, and I just, I just to me that br- makes me bristle. Yeah. It's like, I mean, I, I don't bullshit, know exactly right? what what various uh, Buddhist philosophers might say about uh, exactly that point. They wouldn't deny the stream of of so-called memories and and the and the sense of continuity of identity. Now, uh, one thing they might, well, uh, and I should say, look, I'm, uh, my basic claim in the book is that the two most radical claims of Buddhism, not self and emptiness, have a lot more to be said for them than you, than you might, or a lot less crazy than you might think. They, they make a kind of moral sense, and both of those things, I think, are true. They're, they're uh, what you might call metaphysical defensibleness, and their, their moral defensibleness, I would say, are, 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 are partly true by virtue of viewing human beings in, in the context of natural selection. So that's kind of the claim. I mean, I'm, I'm beyond a point... I mean, I, mean I, I, I view consciousness itself as so mysterious that it's almost hard to say anything categorical about... Selves, I, you know, and, and I and I will say that the the role of consciousness in all this is particularly is one of the more problematic things I think in that first uh, discourse of the of the Buddhas. But and I get into that in the book. But um, just let me say one thing about continuity of identity. I I think what Buddhists might say is that let aside your 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 memory of the past, your projection of your experience into the future. And your, your attachment to the future self is an error, okay? Could you be more specific? Well, again, it ha- I'm, first of all, I'm speculating that, that some people would, would say this, some Buddhists would say this, but uh, they would say, first of all, they say it's a moral error to privilege the future version of yourself more than the future version of other people, and, and to say, like, Oh, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta get up early and get that piece of food so that the other guy can't have it. But underlying that claim w- w- would, I think, be the idea that it's a metaphysical confusion to see yourself. That it's not in here. You don't have to identify with the future self. One thought experiment that I, I've never heard a Buddhist put it forth, but it's it's relevant. Is like, um, is it relevant? It's like. Uh, It's so it's so hard because the the intuition that I should care about my future self is so deeply embedded in us. Isn't but, it embedded in you? I mean, aren't you constantly talking about our moral improvement? Isn't that about talking about your future, about about what you hope your future self is going to be like? Well, yeah, but in that case, the hope is in a certain sense on behalf of others because the hope is that you'll become more selfless. Uh, although, uh, again, the claim is you know that you will be happier too. And 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 look, these paradoxes are inescapable. I mean, like, you know, that, that, that a Buddhist might say, look, meditate, you'll become happier, you'll become better, and they go, wait, you? Who is this you, right? I mean, 
I'm, I'm not going to purport to transcend these or resolve these paradoxes, but um, th there is this interesting, I don't know if this is related or not, but, but what I've always thought is a kind of interesting thought experiment. You, well, well, you can probably name the philosophers who, who, who talk this way, but uh, would you... Uh, Which would you rather be the case that you just die, or that uh, tonight when you go to bed, uh, all of your memories are erased, and you're moved to another house, and and you are given the memories of some other person. So you wake up. And you've got some totally different memory, but it makes sense. You you don't yeah okay I'm this guy you don't you don't you don't remember the the version of you that died. Uh, which would you rather happen that you just die or that somebody do this thing that turns you into this other happy person? Isn't that a famous thought experiment in philosophy? I don't I don't think I would be I don't think I'd have a reason to prefer one of the over the other. I think a lot of people say the second, um, and and uh, <laughs> but I can't. Effectively, from my perspective now, they're the same. I mean, I think a lot of people say the second <laughs> because because they view themselves as then having. Well, anyway, I, I'm going to drop that particular. It's not you. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Um, uh, but well, anyway, go ahead. No, but let me ask you. I mean, in terms of this notion of, I guess I find it a little odd. So, so. When I asked you about, well, you know, aren't I concerned about my future self whenever I'm thinking about a, a moral improvement, right? And you said, yes, but then you're thinking about the other person, right? Um, but then the other person, I guess you're going to tell them the same thing. They should be thinking about me, right? Um, not about themselves. And so at the end of the day, everybody's getting thought about, right? Um, yeah, well, I wouldn't say it's not so, so much. Why, they, I, what's what's this fixation? I, I would I would I would I, I I would amend that. I mean, I I wouldn't say that the claim is so much that they should feel this obligation to think about you. They should let go of the selfish things that lead them to behave in ways that might compromise your your happiness needlessly. Um, the so it's it's not now there is there isn't in, in Buddhism like a strand of like loving kindness meditation and an emphasis on compassion and all that, but I would say job one is just letting go of the selfish parts, um, and you know again I mean in my experience a kind of compassion uh, tends to flow from that I mean when I'm at the end of a retreat and I've let go of a certain amount of stuff and. I'm I'm uh, I'm a nicer person, but uh, you you shouldn't. The idea here, at least, when you talk about meditative attainment, movement toward uh, enlightenment, the idea is not so much being burdened with a sense of obligation to other people. I would say, as it might be in in the Western tradition. Now that said, there are Buddhist moral strictures that uh, that everyday Buddhists in Asia are quite conscious of, for sure. You see, I, I almost feel like there's a little bit, and I said something similar to Massimo about the Stoicism, that there's something a little odd about spending so much time on yourself 
and then claiming that the whole point is to get rid of yourself and to be and to be to not differentiate yourself from the other things and other people. Well, everybody's spending so much time on themselves; they're just doing it in different ways. Watching TV is spending time on yourself because you like watching TV. Yeah, but it's not a it's not a twelve point project, right? I mean, I mean, there's something I don't know. I find. I find something really kind of sort of self-indulgent about a lot of this. Um, 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 Compared and I to what? I'm sorry? Compared to what? They're just muddling through. I mean, I don't know, like most people do. I mean, they're just... They're just um, um, most people lot, muddling through are relentlessly focused on their interests and the interests of their loved ones. Yeah, but that's a good thing. Well, that might, it's a fine thing. It's, it's a perfectly fine thing. But your intuition, see, one thing about, that's hard about making these arguments and, and, and that makes it hard to uh, move you toward enlightenment, hard as I'm trying, Dan, uh, is... Uh, I don't want to be enlightened. Is that, you know, natural selection <laughs> built all these intuitions into us. And I'm questioning the very basis of the, you know, and, and you know... So, like, for example, when you, at the beginning, I noticed, when you said uh, something about your duties to other people, all you mentioned was your wife and children. Well, that's a very naturally human thing. But we now understand that that's just because natural selection values genetic proliferation. So it, it, it created these beings that love their children and will kill other people, including other innocent people, to protect them. Now, I'm not saying you've done that, by the way, but, but the, the, the intuition... That loving your family uh, is good without asking, well, what should the limits be? Um, or, or you know, is, is again, that's a, an intuition that's built into us. And look, I love my kids. I, 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 loving your family is, is a perfectly defensible thing, even in a utilitarian sense, up to a point. But it's one of many things that we take for granted, because natural selection built the intuition into us. Yeah, you're not going to get too much knowledge with me on these evolutionary arguments. I mean, I did a whole dialogue with Massimo about why both of us find these to be rel relatively uh, useless. Um, to, to give to to, to give a, find sort of, what not the intuitions. What do you find evo useless? These evolutionary accounts or explanations of highly socially inflected, complex, steeped in intentionality sort of uh, notions and ideas and values to just not really be very useful. Yeah, but surely you don't deny... It's just, just a form of just-so story. But surely you don't deny that the fact that in every human culture ever known to humankind, there is this thing of loving your offspring more than other people and defending them ferociously, you don't think that has nothing to do with natural selection? No, I do, of course I don't. I, of okay, course so that is an intuition. Think, of course I don't not think that, but that has that that says nothing to its validity, its role in ethics. I mean, that's just the genetic fallacy, right? I mean, I mean, you just simply pointed out where something comes from. That tells me nothing about its. Well, validity, no, 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 no. Here's the thing. No, here's the thing. No, no, no. Calculus. Here's the key. Uh, Here's uh, the key. Or let's take another intuition that's subtler, which is the intuition that good that good deeds should be rewarded and bad deeds should be punished, which <clears throat> I think for separate reasons, aside from the fact that I have the intuition, uh, is in most cases defensible. But, but we have the intuition that good people should be, uh, people who do good things should be, should be rewarded, people who do bad things should be punished. The intuition is is that that is morally good, that when that happens, 
it isn't like the it isn't like the urge to eat food. Okay, that food I I eat it. It fe- it feels good in that sense. Moral intuitions feel indisputably good in a moral sense. You just don't question the goodness of punishing people who have done bad things because it feels as if you were in touch with some higher realm of values. That's just the nature of the intuition. And when that is the source of the authority of the intuition, it's the intuition that it's morally right, I think it's worth pointing out to people why they actually have the intuition. They don't actually have the intuition because they're in touch with some higher higher source of truth. No, they have the intuition because it made sense in Darwinian terms. And so if they're going to defend it, they need to defend it from the ground up, which you can largely do in that case. If you're a utilitarian, fine. But I think you should go through the exercise rather than naively accepting the intuition. I mean, I guess I don't. I don't know where this gets us in terms of. In terms well, it's of a direct. It's a direct uh, reply to what you just said. That you you said no. It's of no value knowing. You said some combination of. Uh, it's it doesn't, either, it doesn't tell me anything about the validity or of or or, or of the role in any sort of moral system of the idea that. I have a, a greater obligation to my daughter than a, to a total stranger on the other side of the planet. Um, um, that that doesn't the fact that 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 there is an evolutionary history that that speaks to the instinctual feelings of parents for children doesn't speak to in any way inform the validity of the claim that I have a greater responsibility to my daughter than to a total. No, wait, wait, wait. What I'm saying is the fact that it feels right to you is of no value whatsoever. That's my claim from a Darwinian point. You're going to have to let go of that and defend it from the ground up. Well, first of all, have to. I don't have to do anything. No, as a logical matter, my claim is that you do. Number two, yeah, I know, but, you know, claims of have to are only good as, you know, who is the guy who says, where's the the Pope's armies? Um, um, I I don't really really care what people say I have to do. Um, The question is whether, you know, I think there's a good reason. And well, what um, is your what is the reason other than that it feels right to you? What is your reason? Why? Yeah, either the sense of justice or that you should love your kids more than others. Well, what I is mean, the feeling other than that it feels I, right? I mean, look, I mean, it, w- w- this is sort of, sort of getting us way off of our subject. I mean, I mean, this is getting us under the subject of you know ethics more generally, and I have a pretty complicated view on this. I'm not a utilitarian. I'm not a deontologist. Um, um, uh, you know, if if you, I, I'm not even sure that I would say that things having to do with my daughter and my wife and those who are the most my my closest intimates are, are ultimately, in my mind, determined by by their moral by their moral uh, 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 status. Um, um, I said, you know, I care about them more. That's for one thing, and that's that's highly relevant to me. But that's totally um, tautological. I mean. No, it's not. That's the basis of all descriptions of value, is what matters to you and what you care about. Now, in the old days, prior to the modern era... So if a, if a rapist says, I care about raping, is that enough? No. No, of course not. Well, You're why asking... is it it works for you and not them? But the, 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 Why can't they just say, but this is the basis of ascribing me, value? If you ask me, let's be specific. If you ask, so uh, our, our gr- the great moralizer of our time, Peter Singer... Um, has suggested in works that he's written that my spending money on to send my daughter to private school 
is wrong because I could have used that money to feed some starving person in Africa and my kid didn't need to go to a private school. Now, my answer to Peter Singer is, I care more about my kid than about the stranger in Africa and it's none of your fucking business. That's my answer. See, that's not now, a now, wait, no, wait a minute. Now, wait a minute. Argument. If you want to have a serious moral conversation, we can, right? Well, that's what but, I want. You're a philosopher. But, I don't but, want you but, to say it felt good, so I did it. No. But, but I don't. But but a lot of things are a lot of things. Not everything falls under that kind of moral discourse, right? Um, um, I <laughs> moral don't, discourse I don't, does. I don't. I don't. You know, I'm not paying for my daughter to go to college out of moral obligation. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't do all sorts of things for her that I don't do for other people because of moral reasons. I do them because she's my daughter, right? And I'm her father. I mean, I guess, I guess, you know, part of the notion is that these concepts are, are, are morally thick. They're not, they're not things, you know, one of the, there's a very famous uh, uh, argument against Peter Singer's uh, Ethics and Animals uh, work by Cora Diamond. Um, um, uh, called meeting, eating, eating meat and eating people. And she says, look, the reason we don't eat other people isn't because they satisfy certain criteria. It's because person is a morally thick concept, right? People are not things to eat. And, and children are things for whom, your children are things for whom you do. You know, if, if I didn't do these things, she wouldn't be my daughter in some very real relevant sense. And so I guess I just don't think I, I'm not, about... I'm actually not arguing against doing them. I'm yeah. just saying that it is not a serious philosophical response to Peter Singer to say it feels right to do it. That it feels right to do what? To, 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 to send my daughter to private school? Because yeah. I want her to... I want her because to you do... feel that it's right to treat your daughter that way. That's just not a serious argument. I guess I don't think I need an argument. Well, okay, fine, but... <laughs> then we're not in the realm of moral philosophy. This, this is mis but this strikes me as a misplaced uh, look. Philosophy is misapplied all over the place, and and this seems to me to be one of them. I mean, I mean, I just, I just don't know that I that I think that moral philosophy is very usefully engaged in this manner, right? Okay, and, okay, fine. The, then it's not. Then you don't. Uh, I, I, you know, but you know, if you're going to ask me why, you know, listen, I mean, it, it, come on, it borderlines on the absurd. Even Peter Singer did ten gazillion thousand things for his kids. That's a separate life. argument. If you want to call him a hypocrite, call him one. But that it's has nothing out, to do with. No, it's not that he's a hypocrite. It's that I just, I just think that there's this kind of disconnect between when you're doing your academic work. And you're purporting to talk about real life, and then the actual things that go on in your real life. And I guess I just think I'd rather start with the real life, and then see where in the real life the places are that the philosophy is needed. I see there being no controversy about the fact that I do things for my kid that I don't do for total strangers. And so that's not somewhere where I'm going to choose to engage a moral philosophical framework. And I similarly think a little bit with this business about the self to try and bring it back to it. The self is the most mundane, ordinary, common element of every interaction you have with every single person and institution you engage with. And to suggest that there isn't one either means that what you're talking about is something esoteric and different, in which case, okay, maybe there isn't one of those, but so what? Or you're just saying something that's, that, that you yourself couldn't possibly believe given the way you act every single day, given the way you talk, given the way you interact with other people, given the way the, the, a retreat meditation is a highly artificial environment, right? It's a highly artificial situation. It's almost like a laboratory situation. 
That's not how, you know, and that's why Hume, you know, the great genius of Hume, you know, you mentioned him. Yes, he says intellectually, philosophically, there's no way to justify the belief in itself. There's also no way to justify belief in causality. There's no way to philosophically justify belief in a whole bunch of other things. He also then says, it would be foolish to try to not believe these things, and you'd be a perverse human being if you walked around trying to act as if these things didn't exist, and you just ought to go ahead and lead your life in a normal fashion. He says, be a philosopher, but above all, be a man. By which he means a human. Well, again, again, we should privilege the ordinary over the extraordinary in all of these sorts of discussions. Well, again, Buddhism does uh, acknowledge the conventional right. existence of the self. So, in other words, yes, you go around acting as if the self exists, but the claim is that there are significant senses in which it doesn't. And and what I mean, you know, we did get far away from Buddhism in, in, the, uh, in the argument of Darwinism. One reason it matters to me is, uh, again, uh, you know, Buddhism is questioning our intuitions. It's questioning our moral intuitions. It's questioning our intuitions about ourselves. And, the, you know, the, a point I make in the book and, and elaborate on in, in both of these contexts is that, remember... No true Darwinian who understands the theory of natural selection uh, would expect the human uh, brain to be selected to uh, consistently perceive the truth, the actual truth, about morality or about the, the self, the so-called self. Rather, uh, people tend to perceive the world in such a way and think the kind of thoughts and have the kinds of feelings that in the past got genes transmitted, and that's it, period. And so at that level, you should not naively trust your perceptual and intuitive and cognitive apparatus. That is the, uh, that's the general point. And, and stated with sufficient abstraction and generality, I think it's unassailable. Uh, but, but, uh, but then when you start applying it, uh, it gets more challenging, uh, but I think it's worth doing uh, for, for, for us to question the way we look at things. I don't think that there's any escaping the intuitional. I think that ultimately the only thing that can challenge an intuition is a contrary intuition. Um, I very much like W.D. Ross's uh, uh, theory of sort of prima facie duties, and that is that you know any felt obligation is a prima facie duty. Um, however, it can be overridden depending on the circumstances by another one. Um, however, that does not mean that the original obligation disappears. It simply means that it's it's defeasible, um, and it usually continues to operate in the background. So you know if I'm if I have an obligation to meet you for lunch. And on the way to meeting, driving to meet you, I, I go back as a car accident and, and, you know, I have to decide whether to save the person inside or, or, or meet you for lunch. I'm going to say that, you know, the duty to, 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 to save the person in the car is overriding, but I'm still going to try to make it up to you. I'm going to apologize. I may buy you the lunch next time as a, as, as a way of making it up to you, which shows that the initial obligation still, uh, still operates in the background, even though it was overridden. But I've never, you know, I, I've never, ever heard 
or seen an example, genuinely speaking, where a theoretical consideration alone, purely, on its own, either defeated or overrode a basic intuition. And I probably think that that's just because of the way we are. I mean, I, I don't think it's possible. Hume, Hume thinks Well, that's what I started out saying when I said um, it's not enough for your parents to tell you to stop and smell the roses. It's harder than that, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. And, uh... And that, that's kind of my point. I mean, that, that is a little Humean in the sense that, as you know, Hume, Hume said, nothing can oppose a feeling but another feeling. Uh, and, and I agree. And, 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 and in fact, you know, that, that gets to, I mean, another thing Hume appreciated was how finely and subtly affect steers cognition and influences behavior. And the reason, you know, you said a meditation retreat is a sterile environment, like a laboratory it's environment. It's artificial. Yeah, it is artificial. I didn't say sterile. It's deeply, okay, fine. It's deeply artificial. The whole idea of a serious meditation regime is artificial. Right. And the reason I think some, something that artificial is needed, and the reason I think something as intensive as a meditation retreat may be needed to, uh, if you want to make great progress, um, is precisely because that's what you are up against. Feeling shapes our thought and convinces us that things are true, whether or not they correspond to objective truth. And given how finely feeling infiltrates thought, it stands to reason. Uh, and given the fact that it's, at some sense, maybe hard, right? It stands to reason that it would take a lot of work, a lot of discipline in, in what is, yes, an artificial environment, to make inroads, okay, and uh, yeah, but inroads to, towards what? I mean, look, I mean, part of what I feel like is is underlying all of this, and maybe is that I don't think that in other in other words, there's always this sense of sort of you know of, of that things need that need correction, and that assumes that there is something beyond the reality you're in relative to which we're going to correct it. In other words. I don't think there is anything beyond the social, essentially social reality of selves and reasons and norms and obligations relative to which to correct them. And so, and so that's why I'm always thinking that the, in reality, really all that can be done is a kind of muddling along, a kind of bootstrapping, a kind of, and what I object to, to a lot of these sort of systems is that they seem to think that there is some identifiable um, um, correct way of things or true way of things or right way of things beyond that we can sort of hold up and say, okay, well, we need to correct all this messy stuff down here so that we'll get to that point or so that we'll at least get as close to that point as possible. I don't think there's any such point. I think that there's just the, the social reality that we live in and that ourselves and our institutions and our values and everything are constituted out of. And I don't think that there's anything else. And so, and so, I, I just don't see what what. So you're it not is. a moral realist. Oh no, absolutely not, absolutely not. No, no. But you value you you think that uh, do you think that human welfare has intrinsic moral value? I don't think anything has intrinsic moral value. Okay, so you're a nihilist. Well, I care about things. You care, but you don't. I mean, in that think, sense, in that you sense, don't think look, one Hume, should care. Hume's not a nihilist, and he's a subjectivist about values. Yeah. Look, look, it's it, this. This is I'm I'm a modern person, right? If I lived, if I was a pre-modern person, or if I was Alexander McIntyre, who wishes he was a pre-modern person, I could pretend that there were values built into the fabric of the world of reality. 
Um, but I don't. I mean, I'm a modern person, and so I think values inherently what a value is is something mattering to someone, right? Yeah. And the shared values are the, are those things that matter to most of us. Um, and 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 I don't think that there's really anything beyond that um, um, to measure it against. Uh, I don't believe that there's a Platonic realm of, of 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 forms. I don't believe that there are Kantian obligations that are sort of tr uh, uh, truths of reason. I don't. I just think that there's people and the things that we care about, and then the very intricate, complex social forms of life that we create in order to try and, and act those things out. And um, I just don't think there's anything else. Um, you know, and yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I don't, I, I don't, uh, I don't know that I think that there's anything else. One thing I will say on behalf of natural selection is that I think it created value. I think because, for reasons we don't really understand, because complex life involves subjective experience, um, I think things matter. Uh, it's it's you know a pleasant subjective experience is a good thing I yeah, think certainly <laughs> things certainly things mattering to people they matter to people and we're the ones and we're the ones doing the talking is naturally evolved I and mean, that that's that seems undeniable I mean I mean if we didn't have effective sensibility things yeah. wouldn't matter to us right that that's clearly true but I guess that I think that most of the things that we're talking about only exist in their full form as we understand them in a social framework. And I think that 90% of the fruitful understanding of those things comes at the social level of description. I think that the further down you go, go the, 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 the more diminishing the returns are. Obviously, to go down to the quantum physics level would be even more diminishing returns. You get almost nothing out of that. Um, but but I, I think that we actually have really kind of neglected... There's been such a kind of a fetishization of hard science over the last hundred years and such a desperate desire on the part of social sciences to become more like hard sciences that I think we've actually we've lost out a lot. I actually think we would understand the self an awful lot better with a lot less neuroscience and a lot more Max Weber style social science. Um, um, I, I actually think that this is what, a really bad turn that we took. Well, I mean, actually, ironically, uh, this is a different argument, but I think... In a way, uh, what you don't like, the turn that you don't like about the social sciences is to some extent uh, happened to the extent that they haven't tried to emulate uh, the hard sciences in a way. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think, uh, you know, Weber was an empiricist. I mean, uh, we don't need to get into anthropology and postmodernism and everything. Uh, I, I, was, I was just at a... a, a a great conference with Stanley Fish, who turns out to be quite the, the character. Um, oh, I love him. He's really, in, I think he's interesting. Yeah, yeah he's super interesting. Yeah. Uh, speaking of postmodernists, well, look, we're close to the record for longest dialogue. So let me just say, um, I think uh, personally that there is value. <clears throat> you know, we, we all look at the world and have perceptions about it and feelings about it and intuitions about it. I personally think at a minimum there is value in understanding where those intuitions uh, came from and it's hard for me to imagine that natural selection, the process it created, the brain doesn't shed at least some light on that. So I think it's worth uh, looking at what light it sheds and it, it just seems to me that to a pretty remarkable 
extent, given the fact that Buddhism took shape millennia ago, Buddhism's, the, the, the intuitions that Buddhism counsels skepticism about, those align pretty well with what I would say are the intuitions that, that, that a, a, a considered reflection on natural selection and evolutionary psychology leads one logically to feel skeptically about. That's my that's my argument. I was it wasn't too uh, convoluted a way to say it. Do you understand what I'm? I look. I understand that. Um. Um. And it always gets down. The devils get down to the details. So you know, I have no nothing to object to about. But now, you know, when you get to specific intuitions, and you say, "Listen, I think we ought to be really skeptical about this." You know, I might say, "No." I mean, I see no reason to be skeptical about. Uh, the 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 the, my, my, the fact that I feel uh, impelled to do uh, things for my daughter that I don't feel impelled to do for people on the other side of the planet. I just don't feel. I don't. I don't. I don't feel. Yeah, I'm, I'm not making that argument one way or the other. No, no, no. Of course not. So, but but what I was going to say by way of summary, in terms of the the not self, which was the the original uh, subject, I think I understand. I understood pretty well what you said with regard to elements of your experience that you no longer either feel connected to you or that you no longer feel the differentiatingness between you and the other. Mm -hmm. I understand mm -hmm. that pretty well, and I, that makes perfect sense to me. And I can even see how it would be valuable as an exercise in certain, con in certain frames, frameworks. I don't see how that gets you to the self not existing. Even taken as an idealization, I don't see how it gets you to the self not existing. Um, um, so that part of it, I still don't understand. Well, yeah, it's not a philosophical argument for it. That that's just the experiential version. It's it, it's. I thought uh, that was very clear the way you put that about yeah. the, the sensation and on the one hand and in your foot and then on the other hand, right, right, the sound and, outside. Yeah. That was very clear. That's not the philosophical argument for it because after all, that is itself in a sense intuitive. Why should you trust that intuition? You might come up with answers. Why? an intuition you have after a lot of meditation it beats an intuition you had before. But that's, uh, uh, that is not the argument. That's not the philosophical argument. And that's a separate part of Buddhism and, uh, and has many strands and so on. So I think by now people get the idea of the general, uh, the contours of the... But the not-self, the really, if you really mean it, it still eludes me. Anything, if it's beyond the well, human, what, what I would say at a minimum, me. what I would say at a minimum, the part that I'm willing to get behind is that the uh, the intuition of the self that we have is misleading in many ways. the The intuition of the kind of conscious self, and I think psychology has shown us that. You mean sort of an interior, an interior. Uh, uh, subject of an interior enduring substantial or metaphysical subject of experience. I, I'm talking more I would about, agree with that. I'm talking I'm more totally about the CEO well. part. I'm talking more about the CEO part. The sense we have that I, the conscious, I'm making, I, the conscious me, is controlling these decisions and thoughts. Right. In as opposed sense, to basically I, witnessing them and then convincing them myself that I generated them. And in, in, if that's meant in one way, I probably would agree with that. Um, 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 in another sense, I probably wouldn't. So what we'd have to do, we'd have to do another one. To okay, well, we'll just cut the part right before you said in another sense. And end. <laughs> that's fine. You want to post that at me? That's fine. I well, uh, this <laughs> this has been great, Dan. Thanks for indulging me. Um, and you know, if you have time to read the book, then then, uh, then well, I'm going to buy. I'm going to. I bought Massimo's book. I'm certainly going to buy your book. What are we, you kidding? We can. How could any human not? 
How, how could any? Hey, that's a not? basic intuition. I buy my friend's books, man. Well, sometimes you should trust your intuition. <laughs> as I've often said, as I've so often said, there are good intuitions and bad. As you said this whole time, we should just trust those instincts. Yeah, intuitions. yeah. If it feels good, do it, man. <laughs> All right, Bob. Take care of yourself. Okay. Thanks. All right. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to Meaning of Life TV. You can help support this content by remembering to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to all Meaning of Life episodes or to a specific program by going to our subscribe page at meaningoflife.tv slash subscribe. There you can sign up for podcast downloads via iTunes or Stitcher, or you can subscribe to our email and we'll send you an alert every time we post a new episode. 